Chapters 9 and 10 of Is Shakespeare Dead by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9. Did Francis Bacon write Shakespeare's works? Nobody knows. We cannot say we know a thing when that thing has not been proved. No is too strong a word to use when the evidence is not final and absolutely conclusive. We can infer if we want to, like those slaves. No, I will not write that word. It is not kind. It is not courteous. The upholders of the Stratford Shakespeare superstition call us the hardest names they can think of, and they keep doing it all the time very well if they like to descend to that level let them do it but i will not so undignify myself as to follow them i cannot call them harsh names the most i can do is to indicate them by terms reflecting my disapproval and this without malice without venom to resume what I was about to say was, those thugs have built their entire superstition upon inferences, not upon known and established facts. It is a weak method and poor, and I am glad to be able to say our side never resorts to it while there is anything else to resort to. But when we must, we must, and we have now arrived at a place of that sort. Since the Stratford Shakespeare couldn't have written the works, we infer that somebody did. Who was it, then? This requires some more inferring. Ordinarily, when an unsigned poem sweeps across the continent like a tidal wave, whose roar and boom and thunder are made up of admiration, delight, and applause, a dozen obscure people rise up and claim the authorship why a dozen instead of only one or two one reason is because there's a dozen that are recognizably competent to do that poem do you remember beautiful snow do you remember rock me to sleep mother rock me to sleep do you remember Backward, turn backward, O oh, time in thy flight, make me a child again just for tonight. I remember them very well. Their authorship was claimed by most of the grown-up people who were alive at the time, and every claimant had one plausible argument in his favor at least. To wit, he could have done the authoring. He was competent. Have the works been claimed by a dozen? They haven't. There was good reason. The world knows there was but one man on the planet at the time who was competent, not a dozen and not two. A long time ago, the dwellers in a far country used now and then to find a procession of prodigious footprints stretching across the plain footprints that were three miles apart, each footprint a third of a mile long and a furlong deep, and with forests and villages mashed to mush in it. Was there any doubt as to who had made that mighty trail? 
Were there a dozen claimants? Were there two? No. The people knew who it was that had been along there. There was only one Hercules. There has been only one Shakespeare. There couldn't be two. Certainly there couldn't be two at the same time. It takes ages to bring forth a Shakespeare, and some more ages to match him. This one was not matched before his time, nor during his time, and hasn't been matched since. The prospect of matching him in our time is not bright. The Baconians claim that the Stratford Shakespeare was not qualified to write the works, and that Francis Bacon was. They claim that Bacon possessed the stupendous equipment, both natural and acquired, for the miracle, and that no other Englishman of his day possessed the like, or indeed anything closely approaching it. Macaulay, in his essay, has much to say about the splendor and horizonless magnitude of that equipment. Also, he has synopsized Bacon's history, a thing which cannot be done for the Stratford Shakespeare, for he hasn't any history to synopsize. Bacon's history is open to the world, from his boyhood to his death and old age, a history consisting of known facts displayed in minute and multitudinous detail, facts not guesses and conjectures and might-have-beens. Whereby it appears that he was born of a race of statesmen, and had a Lord Chancellor for his father, and a mother who was distinguished both as a linguist and a theologian. She corresponded in Greek with Bishop Jewell, and translated his Apologia from the Latin so correctly that neither he nor Archbishop Parker could suggest a single alteration. It is the atmosphere we are reared in that determines how our inclinations and aspirations shall tend. The atmosphere furnished by the parents to the son in this present case was an atmosphere saturated with learning, with thinkings and ponderings upon deep subjects, and with polite culture. It had its natural effect. Shakespeare of Stratford was reared in a house which had no use for books, since its owners, his parents, were without education. This may have had an effect upon the son, but we do not know, because we have no history of him of an informing sort. There were but few books anywhere in that day, and only the well-to-do and highly educated possessed them, they being almost confined to the dead languages. All the valuable books then extant in all the vernacular dialects of Europe would hardly have filled a single shelf. Imagine that. The few existing books were in the Latin tongue mainly. A person who was ignorant of it was shut out from all acquaintance, not merely with Cicero and Virgil, but with the most interesting memoirs, state papers, and pamphlets of his own time, a literature necessary to the Stratford lad, 
for his fictitious reputation's sake, since the writer of his works would begin to use it wholesale and in a most masterly way before the lad was hardly more than out of his teens and into his twenties. At fifteen, Bacon was sent to the university, and he spent three years there. Thence he went to Paris in the train of the English ambassador, and there he mingled daily with the wise, the cultured, the great, and the aristocracy of fashion during another three years, a total of six years spent at the sources of knowledge, knowledge both of books and of men. The three spent at the university were coeval with the second, and the last three spent by the little Stratford lad at Stratford School supposedly and perhapsedly and maybe, and by inference, with nothing to infer from. The second three of the Baconian six were presumably spent by the Stratford lad as apprentice to a butcher. That is, the thugs presume it, on no evidence of any kind which is their way when they want a historical fact. Fact and presumption are, for business purposes, all the same to them. They know the difference, but they also know how to blink it. They know, too, that while in history building a fact is better than a presumption, it doesn't take a presumption long to bloom into a fact when they have the handling of it. They know by old experience that when they get a hold of a presumption tadpole, he's not going to stay tadpole in their history tank. No, they know how to develop him into the giant four-legged bullfrog of fact and make him sit up on his hams and puff out his chin and look important and insolent and come to stay and assert his genuine Simon pure authenticity with a thundering bellow that will convince everybody because it is so loud. The thug is aware that loudness convinces sixty persons where reasoning convinces but one. I wouldn't be a thug, not even if—but never mind about that. It has nothing to do with the argument, and it is not noble in spirit besides. If I am better than a thug, is the merit mine? No, it is his. Then to him be the praise. That is the right spirit. They presume the lad severed his presumed connection with the Stratford school to become apprentice to a butcher. They also presume that the butcher was his father. They don't know. There's no written record of it, nor any other actual evidence. If it would have helped their case any, they would have apprenticed him to thirty butchers, to fifty butchers, to a wilderness of butchers, all by their patented method presumption. If it will help their case, they will do it yet, and if it will further help it, they will presume that all those butchers were his father and the week after they will say it. Why, it is just like being the past tense of a compound, reflexive, adverbial, incandescent, hypodermic, irregular, accusative noun of multitude. 
which is father to the expression which the grammarians call verb. It is like a whole ancestry with only one posterity. To resume. Next, the young Bacon took up the study of law and mastered that abstruse science. From that day to the end of his life, he was daily in close contact with lawyers and judges, not as a casual onlooker in intervals between holding horses in front of a theater, but as a practicing lawyer, a great and successful one, a renowned one, a lancelot of the bar, the most formidable lance in the high brotherhood of the legal table round. He lived in the law's atmosphere thenceforth all his years, and by sheer ability forced his way up its difficult steeps to the supremest summit, the Lord Chancellorship, leaving behind him no fellow craftsman qualified to challenge his divine right to that majestic place. When we read the praises bestowed by Lord Penzance and the other illustrious experts upon the legal condition and legal aptnesses, brilliances, profundities, and felicities so prodigally displayed in the plays, and try to fit them to the history-less Stratford stage manager, they sound wild, strange, incredible, ludicrous, but when we put them in the mouth of Bacon, they do not sound strange. They seem, in their natural and rightful place, they seem at home there. Please turn back and read them again. Attributed to Shakespeare of Stratford, they are meaningless. They are inebriate extravagancies, intemperate admirations of the dark side of the moon, so to speak. Attributed to Bacon, they are admirations of the golden glories of the moon's front side, the moon at the full, and not intemperate, not overwrought, but sane and right and justified. At every turn and point at which the author required a metaphor, simile, or illustration, his mind ever turned first to the law. He seems almost to have thought in legal phrases. The commonest legal phrases, the commonest of legal expressions, were ever at the end of his pen. That could happen to no one but a person whose trade was the law. It could not happen to a dabbler in it. Veteran mariners fill their conversation with sailor phrases and draw all their similes from the ship and the sea and the storm but no mere passenger ever does it, be he of Stratford or elsewhere, or could do it with anything resembling accuracy, if he were hardy enough to try. Please read again what Lord Campbell and the other great authorities have said about Bacon when they thought they were saying it about Shakespeare of Stratford. Chapter 10. The Rest of the Equipment the author of the plays was equipped, beyond every other man of his time, with wisdom, erudition, imagination, capaciousness of mind, grace, and majesty of expression. Everyone has said it, no one doubts it. Also, he had humor. 
humor and rich abundance, and always wanting to break out. We have no evidence of any kind that Shakespeare of Stratford possessed any of these gifts or any of these acquirements. The only lines he ever wrote, so far as we know, are substantially barren of them, barren of all of them. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man yet spares these stones, and cursed be he yet moves my bones. Ben Jonson says of Bacon as orator, His language, where he could spare and pass by a jest, was nobly censorious. No man ever spoke more neatly, more pressly, more weightily, or suffered less emptiness, less idleness in what he uttered. No member of his speech but consisted of his its own graces. The fear of every man that heard him was lest he should make an end. From Macaulay He continued to distinguish himself in Parliament, particularly by his exertions in favor of one excellent measure on which the king's heart was set, the union of England and Scotland. It was not difficult for such an intellect to discover many irresistible arguments in favor of such a scheme. He conducted the great case of the post nati in the exchequer chamber, and the decision of the judges— a decision the legality of which may be questioned, but the beneficial effect of which must be acknowledged, was in a great measure attributed to his dexterous management. Again, while actively engaged in the House of Commons and in the courts of law, he still found leisure for letters and philosophy. The noble treatise on the advancement of learning which at a later period was expanded into De Augmentis, appeared in 1605. The Wisdom of the Ancients, a work which, if it had proceeded from any other writer, would have been considered as a masterpiece of wit and learning, was printed in 1609. In the meantime, the Novum Organum was slowly proceeding several distinguished men of learning had been permitted to see portions of that extraordinary book, and they spoke with the greatest admiration of his genius. Even Sir Thomas Bodley, after perusing the Cogitata et Visa, one of the most precious of those scattered leaves out of which the great oracular volume was afterward made up, acknowledged that in all proposals and plots in that book bacon showed himself a master workman and that it could not be gainsaid but all the treatise over did abound with choice conceits of the present state of learning and with worthy contemplations of the means to procure it in sixteen twelve a new edition of the essays appeared with editions surpassing the original collection, both in bulk and quality. Nor did these pursuits distract Bacon's attention from a work the most arduous, the most glorious, and the most useful that even his mighty powers could have achieved, 
the reducing and recompiling, to use his own phrase, of the laws of England. To serve the exacting and laborious offices of attorney general and solicitor general would have satisfied the appetite of any other man for hard work, but Bacon had to add the vast literary industries just described to satisfy his. He was a born worker. The service which he rendered to letters during the last five years of his life, amid ten thousand distractions and vexations, increased the regret with which we think on the many years which he had wasted, to use the words of Sir Thomas Bodley, on such study as was not worthy such a student. He commenced a digest of the laws of England, a history of England, under the princes of the House of Tudor, a body of national history, a philosophical romance. He made extensive and valuable additions to his essays. He published the inestimable Treatise de Argumentis Scientiarum. Did these labors of Hercules fill up his time to his contentment and quiet his appetite for work? Not entirely. The trifles with which he amused himself in hours of pain and languor bore the mark of his mind. The best jest book in the world is that which he dictated from memory without referring to any book on a day on which illness had rendered him incapable of serious study. Here are some scattered remarks from Macaulay, which throw light upon Bacon, and seem to indicate, and maybe demonstrate, that he was competent to write the plays and poems. With great minuteness of observation, he had an amplitude of comprehension such as has never yet been vouchsafed to any other human being. The essays contain abundant proofs that no nice feature of character, no peculiarity in the ordering of a house, a garden, or a court mask, could escape the notice of one whose mind was capable of taking in the whole world of knowledge. His understanding resembled the tent which the fairy Paribanu gave to Prince Ahmed. Fold it, and it seemed a toy for the hand of a lady. Spread it, and the armies of powerful sultans might repose beneath its shade. The knowledge in which Bacon excelled all men was a knowledge of the mutual relations of all departments of knowledge. In a letter written when he was only thirty-one, to his uncle, Lord Burley, he said, I have taken all knowledge to be my province. Though Bacon did not arm his philosophy with the weapons of logic, he adorned her profusely with all the richest decorations of rhetoric. The practical faculty was powerful in Bacon, but not, like his wit, so powerful as occasionally to usurp the place of his reason and to tyrannize over the whole man. There are too many places in the plays where this happens. Poor old dying John of Gaunt, volleying second-rate puns at his own name, is a pathetic instance of it. We may assume that it is Bacon's fault, but the Stratford Shakespeare has to bear the blame. 
no imagination was ever at once so strong and so thoroughly subjugated it stopped at the first check from good sense in truth much of bacon's life was passed in a visionary world amid things as strange as any that are described in the arabian tales amid buildings more sumptuous than the palace of aladdin fountains more wonderful than the golden water of parizade conveyances more rapid than the hippogriff of rogerio arms more formidable than the lance of astolfo remedies more efficacious than the balsam of fierabra yet in his magnificent daydreams there was nothing wild nothing but what sober reason sanctioned bacon's greatest performance is the first book of the novum organum every part of it blazes with wit but with wit which is employed only to illustrate and decorate truth no book ever made so great a revolution in the mode of thinking overthrew so many prejudices introduced so many new opinions but what we most admire is the vast capacity of the intellect which without effort takes in at once all the domains of science all the past the present and the future all the errors of two thousand years all the encouraging signs of the passing times all the bright hopes of the coming age he had a wonderful talent for packing thought close and rendering it portable his eloquence would alone have entitled him to a high rank in literature it is evident that he had each and every one of the mental gifts and each and every one of the acquirements that are so prodigally displayed in the plays and poems and in much higher and richer degree than any other man of his time or of any previous time he was a genius without a mate a prodigy not mateable there was only one of him the planet could not produce two of him at one birth nor in one age he could have written anything that is in the plays and poems he could have written this the cloud-capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself yea all which it inherit shall dissolve and like an insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep also he could have written this but he refrained good friend for jesus sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here blessed be ye man yet spares these stones and cursed be ye yet moves my bones when a person reads the noble verses about the cloud-capped towers he ought not to follow it immediately with good friend for jesus sake forbear because he will find the transition from great poetry to poor prose too violent for comfort it will give him a shock you will never notice how commonplace and unpoetic gravel is until you bite into a layer of it in a pie End 
of chapters nine and ten.